Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today we have some great guests for you, Dr. Stephen Reed and Anne Delu Beveridge are visiting from Glasgow, Scotland, the University of Glasgow, and the Hunterian Gallery. Welcome, Stephen and Anne. Thank you. Hi. How would you introduce yourselves if I just met you in line for lunch? <laughs> if it was lunch, I think, I guess it wouldn't be professional. I guess we should say hello. If it was in, in work, I guess it would be a Scottish historian at the University of Glasgow. And I work mainly on Mary and her son James in their own lifetime. But over the past few years with Anne, I've been seduced into looking at Mary's afterlife and looking at her life and reputation through the centuries. And I suppose I would introduce myself as uh, an art curator working for the Hunterian, which is part of the University of Glasgow. I'm particularly interested in the 18th and 19th and early 20th century, as our founder, William Hunter, is a great personality from the British life in the 18th century. But just like Stephen, I was seduced to look at Mary Queen of Scots because of a painting that is in our collection by Gavin Hamilton showing the abdication of Mary Queen of Scots. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about about that painting in the next half an hour, because it is really the reason we're here today. Well, let's start out there. Tell us about the painting. Tell us how she seduced you. <laughs> well, Stephen, shall I start here, since yeah. I'm the one who came to you with that painting all those years yes, ago? she seduced you first, yes, yeah, so you go right ahead. <laughs> the Hunterian has within its collection a painting by Gavin Hamilton, who is a Scottish painter born just outside Glasgow in the mid-18th century, but spent most of his life in Rome. And the painting, its claim to fame is that it is the first historical painting depicting an episode of Mary's life. And it is the abdication, which obviously is a key moment in the Queen's life. And it was commissioned by a man called James Boswell, that's very well known in the UK for being the biographer of Dr. Samuel Johnson, who's the author of one of the English dictionaries that was published in the second half of the 18th century. The painting at the time attracted some attention, and it is today among the most reproduced paintings in the Hunterian collection. I've always found it quite fascinating ever since I arrived in Glasgow as a student. And I had this idea of doing a sort of in-focus display that would look at the making and the meaning of the painting, why it was commissioned, why it was important, how it sat within the artist's career who depicted this crucial moment in Mary's life. But I um, wanted to do a bit more than just look at it from an art historical point of view. This is when I contacted Stephen, and I'll just hand over to Stephen to pick up the story from there. 
Okay, thanks, Anne. So at the same time that Anne was doing that, I was looking at various objects in the university collection. And I had a course that I was running with students where instead of doing an exam or an essay, they would each get an object from the university collection from the 16th century, and they would have to research it and write a blog about it. And at that time, we realised that there was a lot of different items relating to Mary. The course was mainly on 16th century Scotland. And so I gave students a lot of Marian items. And then when Anne and I met, we said, well, there's actually quite a lot here in the university collections that's worth further exploration. So we initially set up a small group of people, mainly academics, student interns, and people who work in the collections at the university. And we started to compile a list of all the items that we had relating to Mary in the university and found there were lots. And it was from there that we found all these different patterns and themes and trends about her afterlife. And then we applied to the Royal Society of Edinburgh for funding for two years to, to take this all around Scotland, to go around all the, the different collections that we have in Scotland, in the Royal Collection of the UK and in the British Library across the UK as well. And over two years, we produced a lot of different outputs, which we can talk about in a minute. But we also found about 2,000 items, excluding print books. We found about 2,000 physical objects, engravings, art prints, paintings and physical objects that related to Mary in her afterlife right through the past four and a half centuries. So we found a lot of different material and the material in Glasgow itself is what forms the basis of our exhibition just now. If we just Googled Mary Queen of Scots, which painting would this be? It's, so it's by Gavin Hamilton and it's called The Abdication of Mary Queen of Scots. So it should come up quite quickly. And it's basically depicting Mary in the Lochleven Castle, where she was kept a prisoner, as Lord Lindsay is putting pressure on her arm in order to make her sign the abdication document that is sitting on the table next to her. And on the tables is also a representation of the Scottish crown, which interestingly enough, at the time, the Scottish regalia, which is a crown, the scepter, and what is the third item, Stephen? The crown, the scepter, and the orb. Uh, and the, oh, the sword, the sword, the crown, the scepter, and the sword, yeah. Had actually disappeared, disappeared in the early 18th century. And they reappeared when they were discovered, supposedly by Sir Walter Scott, hidden in a chest in Edinburgh Castle in 1823-24. And one of the joy of working on this exhibition and the painting was to try and work out how much did the artist try and represent reality and how much did he let his imagination run wild in terms of how he was representing the Scottish Queen and this capital moment. And I suppose one of the great joys of the exhibition for me has been to work with Stephen, who from the minute I showed him the painting, just thought it's not just about showing a capital moment of history in 18th century Scotland. It is about the memorialization of Mary. It's about how she's been seen. And that painting was executed as a very key time in how the Queen was seen when she was transferring from being a historical character into becoming a romantic heroine. And that's something that's been at the very heart of the project and is at the very heart of the exhibition as well. And it's made it really interesting because it's about emotions as much as it is about historical facts. It's about our interpretation of history. It's about how we use history to tell our own stories or to support our own causes. And it's valid 
from Meyer's time right up to the present day. Well, let's talk about the painting and the objects. We know she's romanticized. Are these items contemporary to her lifetime or things that have been created in the century since? They're a mix of both. It's one of the trends that we found is that there's a big interest in objects that are supposedly physically associated with Mary. And many of these objects are actually false. And that's part of the interest in the story, that people will willingly believe that these are objects related to Mary, even when the provenance around them is a bit shaky. So good example, the best example is probably the red bed Hollywood house, which was actually a bed that belonged to the Duchess of Hamilton. It was created in the 17th century. But the housekeeper, when the, the house, when Hollywood House was open to public tours, the housekeeper started to take people around and for extra money. She was she was paid by the guests to take them on the tour. And she told everybody that this is Mary's bed. This is the red bed that belonged to Mary. And it spawned a couple of centuries of poetic interest, dramatic, artistic interest. People would come and see it and say, wow, this is Mary's bed. And then in the 20th century, when they started to look at it and trace the provenance, they began to realise, no, this isn't actually Mary's bed at all. That's the most famous example of a, an object that is supposed to be, I suppose, to have a Mary in provenance, but doesn't really. Um, you also get things like locks of hair, you get shoes, you get um, various bits of furniture, um, death masks are another key one. There's a number of death masks relating to Mary circulating, and they all look slightly different, but they're all alleged to belong to Mary. But then that's just one class of objects. You also get objects through the centuries that are purely commemorative objects. You know, new paintings of Mary, as as Anne was saying there, new engravings that build on the, the legend, particularly from the late 18th century onwards. You also get film and TV, you get opera, you get plays, you get books. So there's a wide range of dramatic and artistic objects that are created, as well as we, we still get new commemorative objects like coins and medals. And now we get a lot of tourism accessories and merchandise, if you want to, for want of a better word, that relates to Mary too. But again, Anne can say more about the, the art side of things, the art and uh, the romance side of things, because she's far better placed to talk about that than I am. No, absolutely. Just to pick up on what Stephen was saying, I think what's been really fascinating for us throughout the research project is to find out how many objects have been associated with Mary throughout the centuries, from her own lifetime right up to the present day. And one of the books, for example, that was drawn to our attention quite early on in the project was a book that is a Spanish version of the Iliad by Homer, which was published in the 15th century and was in the collection of Dr. William Hunter. He purchased it in the 18th century. And that book happens to have a signature of Mary on the last page. Now, when the signature came to light in the 1950s and 60s as a collection was being explored, there were questions that were asked as to whether it was an authentic signature or not. The debate is still open, but it's very much what the exhibition is about. It's about this desire to have objects attached to Mary because she has such appeal and whether these connections are authentic or not. And it doesn't really matter whether they're authentic or not. It's about this interest in Mary and what it means and what it meant to the person who would have had that book 
if it was Mary's or the person who actually put that false signature on, if it is a false signature on the book and why, and whether our founder, William Hunter, when he purchased the book, did he know that the signature was there or not? And what it means to us today is that book as well. And interestingly enough, to go back to our founder again, William Hunter, one of the interesting points that became apparent as we were working on the exhibition and the project was that he himself had a very strong interest in Mary. He had a very important library, which was divided according to discipline, so anatomy, coins and medals, history. And the only historical character that had a section dedicated to her was Mary, which shows that he had a very strong interest in her as a character. And it's very typical of the 18th century and in Britain in particular, where there was a real resurgence of interest in Mary and who she truly was, not so much in terms of a historical character, but more in terms of as a person, who was she? What was her true nature? And that's again something that runs throughout the project and runs throughout the exhibition. All those different Marys. Which one is a real one? Can we ever find that out? I like that. Mary is why I was drawn to study Tudor history. Her involvement with Elizabeth I really captivated me. We know she was only the ruler of Scotland for six years. So why has she captivated us for all these centuries? Well, she's technically personal ruler for six years. She rules from 1542 through till 1567 when she's made to abdicate. But she actually only is a direct personal ruler, as you say, Deb, for six years. So one of the key things that I came into the project wanting to ask, and one of the things that still perplexes me is why people are so perpetually interested in her. What it is about her that, that draws people to her? The things that we can see are a few different things. The first is the nature of the story. It's, as we see in the exhibition, it's essentially a three-act play. It starts off with Mary as a child being raised in France, becoming Queen of France in 1558, then her husband dying very shortly afterwards, and then her then being forced into Act Two, which is coming back to Scotland, and then ruling on her own initially, and then with Darnley very briefly, and then her downfall in Scotland, involving the murder of Darnley, and then the marriage to Bothwell. And then Act 3, obviously, when she flees to England in 1568 and then spends the last 19 years of her life in captivity. So it's a story, as we found as we've gone through the project, that the bare facts are always the same. When we start the exhibition, the first room is just devoted purely to those facts, and we show that through coinage across her life. And those facts, they don't really change, but the interpretation of them do. And in all the different versions of her story that we've seen, you find some liberties taken with those facts. So, for example, the, the film and the TV adaptations, they almost always show Mary and Elizabeth meeting, even though they never actually do in real life. Some of the plots bring in Murray more, for example. Some bring in other figures at the English court more. But the story is always used to tell a slightly different story. So although they use the bare facts of Mary's life, if you're talking about Mary in, say, the Georgian period, the impression you're going to get of her story and the model you're going to take from it will be very different from, say, the Victorian period or the 20th century. In the Georgian period, it's really about telling a story of female suffering and enduring that and evoking sympathy in the, in the viewer of the story. In the Victorian period, Mary becomes both more restricted and is seen more as a, as a dutiful suffering wife, but she's also seen as someone who's sexually more progressive, slightly more taboo. 
And then in the 20th century and 21st century, the stories have really been more of a comment on patriarchy and how a, a woman trapped in a, in a world where it's absolutely controlled and governed by men can exercise her power and manage the choices of her role. So the story changes, but the moral we take from it changes, but the actual facts stay the same. And then Anne might want to say something about her iconography, actually, and how that's something that's been a big part of the story as well. Absolutely. And before I do that, I think maybe I will come at how I engaged with Mary, because Stephen is a historian, so he comes at it from a history point of view and he's looking at the facts. And he's so it's, it's a very academic, precise approach. And I came at it from a personal point of view. Mary has been the romantic Mary that I think she is for many of us still today. I, I was born and bred in France and my mother was very good at putting books around the house that she thought I might be interested when I was a teenager. And so Walter Scott was an author that she really enjoyed. So she had put out The Abbot by Sir Walter Scott, which was published in 1821 and has Mary as a heroine. And that's the Mary I grew up with. And being brought up in France as well, we have this image of Mary, the romantic, tragic queen that was killed by the evil English queen. So that's a sort of preconceived idea I had of Mary. And, and I found it really interesting as we were working throughout the project and throughout the exhibition, because it is very much the ideas are still very alive for many people, the idea of romantic Mary. And then just to go through her afterlife and all the many different versions of Mary that have existed, which I mentioned earlier on, has been a fascinating journey. And just to talk to Stephen as well and just to look at it from a purely historical point of view and try and work out still to this day what is myth and what is the truth and what kind of truth are we talking about here as well has been a really interesting journey. And in terms of iconography, we can see that from the very beginning, there is a little bit of mystery around Mary, which is probably one of the reasons she still captivates people to this day so much. There aren't that many portraits of her that has survived to this day. There are more portraits of her as a younger woman from her time in France. And when she comes to Scotland, there are hardly any likenesses that are still considered to be authentic known to us today. And yet, from the minute that she dies, there starts to be a real proliferation of engraved portraits of Mary. And that's the story that we follow throughout the exhibition with engravings from the time of her death right up to the present day almost. And we follow the development of this iconography from those very few authentic likenesses of Mary to the churning out of images that have very little to do with reality, but pick on a certain iconography. There are certain symbols that become associated with Mary's. That means that you can recognize a portrait of hers almost anywhere. And they tend to be the cap, the ruff, the rosary, the crucifix. And what was great for us was that as part of the project, we became involved with a contemporary artist who specializes in comic art. And I'll let Stephen talk about it because I know that he's really a fan of that artist and he does it very well. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the artist is Frank Whiteley, who's drawn X-Men, Batman, Justice League, and a whole range of other comics. But he actually set down to, he's also, his, his real name's Vindian, but he's known as Frank Whiteley. So very, very, very famous comic book artist who's done loads of work for Marvel and DC. But he said to, we asked him to do a, a sketch for us through a, through a 
someone we work with in Glasgow and he, he very happily agreed to do it but he said I'll do it as a almost as a as a character sheet as we would normally do when people are drawing when you, when you create a new costume for Superman or Batman you have to draw the full body figure and you gave all their accessories and their weapons and things beside them so the artist who's drawing them can draw them in any pose so he did a Mary for us like that with Mary in a dress based on the Gavin Hamilton dress but she's also pictured with a a crimson bodice is one of her accessories. She has the executioner's axe, the rosary, the casket where the casket layers are, the executioner's block. And it's just a really interesting and fun way to portray her. And it was also really nice for us to have a piece of bespoke art created for the exhibition that takes it right up to the 21st century. So it's our own piece of afterlife and memorialization of Mary. And in some ways, it's been really good for the exhibition because the, the drawing produced by Frank Whitley sits very proudly in the central room of the exhibition so that people can actually see on his drawing those different symbols associated with Mary and they can use those symbols to then read for themselves the different engraved portraits of Mary that we have throughout the exhibition. And then in the last room, which is really around Mary as she rose as a kind of modern icon in today's society, the drawing is there to really kind of bring the exhibition to a close in a fun way with our own Mary that was created for us by uh, Frank quickly. There's another piece of contemporary art that is there as well, which is a print by an artist called Rachel McLean, dated from 2013. She's a contemporary Glasgow-based artist who is quite famous for her witty, sort of a darkly humorous take on Scottish history and politics. And she created a series of prints in the run-up to the referendum for independence in to, back in 2014, Scottish independence. And she created a series of prints that were using iconic characters from Scottish uh, culture and history to make comments on how historical characters become associated with a country and what they actually mean. And she made a print that was specifically depicting Mary Queen of Scots and John Knox. And it just felt really appropriate to add that print to the exhibition, just to show quite how relevant Mary still is today and how, although she's not as important as she was in the 16th and 17th century in terms of politics, because the minute that the Stuarts are not in power anymore, she does not have such an important role to play politically. And I won't say any more than that because Stephen really is the expert here on these particular matters. But she still is relevant today to our society and she still is a symbol of Scottish identity and so on and so forth. So it's quite fascinating to see how she has remained a popular theme for artists who want to explore Scottish identity just as much as she has remained a popular theme for artists who want to explore romantic ideas or myth, legends, history. So she kind of taps into all sorts of different categories just as much as she had during her lifetime and after. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. 
Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Let's talk about her cultural afterlife for a minute. Currently, her character is involved in The Serpent Queen, which is on Stars, and that is extremely popular in America. I don't know if it's showing in the UK, and I have never seen her portrayed this way. What was the title of that show, sorry, Deb? What was it called? The Serpent Queen. Serpent Queen. I've never seen it, no. It's about Catherine de' Medici, who was, of course, Mary's first mother-in-law. That's right, yeah. They portray Mary as this absolute religious fanatic. And I have never seen her shown that way before. And it's kind of blowing my mind, to be honest about it. But that just shows how popular she still is and how she... Even though it's a a TV show and we all know it's fiction, we know it's fiction, but that's just one thing that's going on here with her. So like you were talking about the art and the different things going on, what are some other things that qualify as her cultural afterlife? So I suppose TV and media is a really good example. Serpent Queen, I haven't seen, I'll have to recommend that to my students. The CW's The Rain, or Rain, that came out a few years back, that lasted for, I think, five seasons, four or five seasons. And again, that centred on a, a really fictional French life of Mary before she even came back to Scotland. I think the last season has her appear in Scotland, and then they, they end it. But there's been, I think, nine films now, nine films that tell her afterlife, beginning with the first film in 1895 which was a short Edison production which is it's a short 18 second clip that features it's the first special effect jump cut it's the first time they have a person lying down in the position about to be executed they freeze the film and then they replace the body with a, a mannequin with a severed head so that it looks like it's been executed so it was the first depiction of Scottish history on film and then I've found out recently through some research that someone's done on the project for us that that's actually a precursor to a slightly longer film from 1895, which is interesting to find out. She's been portrayed by Catherine Hepburn, Vanessa Redgrave as well. The best film that we found, the most interesting one, I think, is Das Herste Königin, which is a 1940 German propaganda film, which again features in the exhibition. It was produced by the Berlin Film Institute and it was designed to show a merciless, cruel Elizabeth persecuting Mary as a, a kind of folksy leader of Scotland. And again, it was subtle propaganda, but it was propaganda nonetheless for the Nazi effort. Really fascinating film with Zara Leander as Mary, who was a very famous drag cabaret singer. She's not a drag artist, but she sang in, in a lot of cabaret bars. And she did a, a lot of minstrelsy work as well. So some really interesting folk songs make their way into the film. I mean, that's one example of the afterlife, certainly, that your, your listeners might be most familiar with is TV and, and film. But again, popular novelisation, children's books, very strong in educational comics these days and in educational books generally. A huge amount of literature around her in the past 200 years. But from an increasingly commercially successful point of view in the past 
30 or 40, I would say. Again, it's something people know that the stories they're telling about Mary aren't entirely true, but they take a huge amount of inspiration from her story to do so. And I would jump in here and just add that one of the interesting points for me that came out of the research project that preceded the exhibition was talking to colleagues who have been working on this with us, around 40 academics, librarians, archivists, as well as curators. And talking to them, it became really clear that the image that most of us have of Mary is really coming not out of the history book, but out of the performing arts, because many of us will have seen a production by Schiller, such as Mary Stuart, for example, and there are other well-known pieces of music. There are all other well-known theatre plays that we may have seen that will have uh, kind of influenced our vision or our view of who the Scottish Queen was, and often has very little to do with reality. That meeting in between Elizabeth and Mary that we've mentioned already is in almost every single performing art performance. And that's really something that most people will take for granted happened, even though it's complete fiction. So, yes, that character of Mary has departed reality a long time ago. And it's an interesting fact to remember. When we talk about the afterlife of Mary, it really takes into account all those kind of different interpretation of her particularly through the performing art, which dominates the last room of the exhibition. Do you believe we are so intrigued with her because she was so very human? Well, she was born a queen. Very few people are born a queen, but she was extremely beautiful. She had her own mind at a time, like Stephen mentioned, she was up against different councils. So she couldn't really get her way. She had a lot of things to do. But do you think, and then her tragic end. So do you think that's one thing that makes us so involved with her? I think the tragic element, certainly on the online course that we run and on the exhibition and indeed in all the kind of public seminars we've done in relation to the project, which has been running for about seven years now, the feedback we get, we've posted all this on the walls in, in the exhibition to show the different range of opinions on Mary. And Tragedy is certainly something that comes out again and again. People think, oh, she had a lot of personal tragedy. What a horrible life. You know, what a shame. Some people think she's entirely to blame for that, you know, and think that she brings it on herself. Others think, oh, she's completely blameless. And that binary narrative goes right back to the fall from power in 1567 when George Buchanan on one side and, and John Leslie on the other create competing narratives about her. George Buchanan, her former tutor, who turns on her, arguably is the, the man behind the Caskill heirs and writes a very evil legend about her as an adulteress and a murderess who's in league with Bothwell completely to destroy Darnley. And then on the other side, John Leslie, the Bishop of Ross, who's one of her key supporters, who writes a, a really almost saint-like narrative around her and says, oh, you know, she was a good woman, she was a, a good wife and mother, she was a devout Catholic, she was fit and well, She had, she's removed from the throne in a conspiracy by her half-brother. And it's completely unfair. So people can delve into that debate in any way they want because it's so so sliced down the middle. And even when you look at the evidence that survives, it can be turned any way you like. So there's the tragedy. I think there is this human element, but it's also, you can read the story in any way you want and anybody can read the evidence for themselves and say, I think it, the story, this part's true, this part isn't, this part is, this part isn't. And you can construct your own narrative. I think that's why we still get so many 
biographies of Mary every year, even though there's not really been any new primary evidence found for almost a century. No, nothing substantial, anyway. No brand new kind of smoking gun letters or anything like that. It's because people can re read and reread these sources and draw their own conclusions from them, and they get really swept up in that story, I think. That's so true. It seems that the more enigmatic a person is, the more we can identify with them on some level, whether it's emotional or intellectually. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, no, I think it's very true. I mean, again, among the comments that were being made throughout the project, someone commented on the fact that Mary Queen of Scots is one of the only historical character we could think of that has had such an afterlife. And why has she become such an icon? I mean, Elizabeth I has achieved an enormous amount throughout her time as a Queen of England. And there are many other historical characters who have achieved a lot more than Mary did during her lifetime. But none of them have had this really, what we really see as a, a tragic life. She had everything to succeed, and yet she ends up being beheaded. There are many elements that are leading her to that point, and the constant reinterpretation of them provides a huge amount of material to reflect on. But something I would like to draw on as well when it comes to the exhibition is the whole theme of women and power is something that's very much at the heart of the exhibition, and we haven't mentioned it yet. And it's a very interesting one because it was incredibly relevant during her own lifetime. There were quite a few powerful women who were queen in 16th century Europe and it created controversy among intellectuals in Europe. There was a raging argument as to whether a woman should have the right to rule or not. And that debate went on throughout the centuries. It kind of changed shape a little bit throughout the 17th and then the 18th and the 19th century. And today, the right of women to rule is not contested in that way in Western civilization anyway. But it is still very relevant to our societies, the place of women in society and how they are being perceived and women in power who might find it difficult to be in power because they are women. And these issues are still being tackled in plays today. And there is one place that is very crucial to the exhibition, which you may not have heard in America, called Mary Got Her Head Chopped Off by a playwriter called Liz Lockhead. And Liz Lockhead has really tried to consider the position of women in 21st society through the characters of Mary and Elizabeth and their position as women and how they dealt with their position in 16th century society and how relevant it is to our society today still. And I really love the fact that the title of the play is taken from a nursery rhyme that is still being sung in Scotland, Mary got her head chopped off. And Stephen, I don't know if you want to add anything from your perspective around the power struggle and women and gender issues around Mary's story. Well, I think, Deb, you asked if, if we see her in human terms. And I, I mean, as a historian, I, my, I study Mary very much in her relationship with her son, James. And I find that relationship shows them both in quite a, if we're going to use a subjective term, in quite a bad light. They both try and use one another to get the Scottish throne to themselves. They're both willing to use each other as bargaining chips quite callously. So again, it doesn't elicit much sympathy in me as a human being seeing that. You know, it's quite 
disturbing, I suppose, to see that dynamic between them. But I would say that over the centuries, the human interest in Mary has been very strongly gendered. It is, as Anne was saying, broadly speaking, for a lot of female authors through the centuries and a lot of female artists, there's been a strong self-identification with Mary in terms of saying that there's no difference between Mary as a queen of power and me in terms of the level of oppression facing in daily life and the daily hardships that I'm facing trying to work in a highly gendered world. And men, in terms of writing about Mary, whether it's Walter Scott or, again, collections like William Hunter's or Walter Goodall writing strongly in defence of Mary, they tend to either portray her as a, someone who absolutely deserves what she gets and they criticise and blame her for that, or they portray her as a victim who is completely blameless in what she does. So in, in a sense, both those narratives take away from Mary's agency and they're essentially saying that Mary didn't really have any say about what happened to her you know she's almost wrapped up in the events of other people being led by the first Darnley then Bothwell and then earlier by Murray so that's a very interesting dynamic men seeking to either apologise for her or criticise her but not recognising that she had independent power of her own and she made her own decisions so it's been interesting to see that dynamic. Very good points. Let's talk about the exhibit. What can you tell us about that? Actually, I was thinking about your comment, Deb, around, you know, the, the Queen Serpent. You were mentioning how Mary was portrayed in that series as a, a fanatic religious character. And this actually is an interesting point because throughout the exhibition main room, which is looking at, it's called From Power to Roman. So it's following the progression of the afterlife of Mary as she slowly goes from being a historical character who has a political and religious significance to being a romantic character. And one of the ways that we do that is looking at her depiction through engraved portraits from roughly her lifetime or just after her death up to the 18th century. And one of the very interesting points that those engravings make is that although there were not that many recognised or authentic likenesses of Mary produced during her lifetime, there seemed to have been a small group that were being used to produce commemorative portraits from the minute that she's executed and they're being sold through Europe. And those commemorative portraits to start with are just, you know, sort of normal portrait of a, of a woman wearing a ruff often and, and in a sort of, you know, Stuart Tudor costume. And then very quickly, those portraits are taken and they are played about with, as in elements are added to the portrait. So for example, scenes of the exhibition would be added in the background and then there would be an allegory of hope and an allegory of faith that would be placed on either side of the portrait. And there might be a martyr crown that would be added and then text would be added as well. And all these additions are there to manipulate the image and to make it into a sort of propaganda image, one could say. And one of the really clear area in which there was propaganda is in terms of presenting Mary as a Catholic martyr. So maybe the makers of that series that you were talking about have been spending time looking at those late 16th and 17th century engravings presenting Mary as a martyr, and it has influenced. Well, with drama being what drama is, everything is always amplified. So um, that's kind of understandable. And I always thought of her as, as devout, but I had never thought of her as being a fanatic. How long will the exhibit be running, Stephen? 
The exhibition, it's going to run until February, so it runs until February the 4th. We have a wide range of coins from Mary's lifetime. We've got a, a range of early modern books from her lifetime as well, documents in the university collection, charters that she's been involved in. We have a wide range of engravings and paintings as well, including the, the painting by Gavin Hamilton. And we've got a very rare showing of portrait of Mary's severed head, which is from Abbotsford House. It's from Walter Scott's personal collection. So we have that on loan. And then we've got a range of cinema showings or cinema material and popular media items in the, the third room in the exhibition, along with the Frank Whiteley painting. So there's a wide range of material. I know a lot of your listeners will be based in the US and so won't be able to see it in person, but they can access the, the Hunterian website and look at a range of items through the site itself. And they can also use the Bloomberg Connects app to look at some of the objects that are on display in the exhibition in more detail and find more information there. So it's going to be on for four months in total. Well, thank you. You read my mind. That was my next question. Will you do anything online? And if you do have an online event, will you tell me so I can let my listeners and followers know that they can see it if we can't make it over there? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of things. So first off, the Hunterian has a weekly lunchtime talk. And again, it's on our main events page for the exhibition and it's on Zoom. So anybody can join from anywhere in the world. And the other big thing that we've done with the project is a massive open online course, uh, which we run in partnership with Future Learn. And I'll send you the, the link to it so you can post it in the notes for the, for the show. But it's essentially a three week free to learn course, completely free to sign up. And it's a distillation of what I teach on Mary's life at Glasgow, alongside a week where we go through all the material we found on the project for her afterlife. So a number of the videos from the exhibition are available on that site. The videos in the course, it's me talking to a whole range of my colleagues in Scottish history, along with Anne and a couple of other people as well, and just getting their views on Mary. So first-hand historical expert knowledge as well. And the course runs every sort of six months. So it's about to launch again on the 31st of October. And it will be open to sign up during that period for the next three weeks. And then it, it will be open to do for about six weeks after that. So there's a full range of material in that course that people can use as well that's linked to the exhibition. And I would add to this that we have through Blomberg Connect, you can find a lot of material that we did not use in the exhibition, as well as materials that we used in the exhibition, which would really allow you to get a good feel for what the exhibition is about and see photographs of the objects, that some of the objects that we've mentioned, that includes the Gavin Hamilton painting, of course, and more. And also we have an online event coming on the 31st of January from 6 till 8 European time. So it might be, actually, it might be okay in America. Yeah, it would just be kind of sort of afternoon. So that would be okay. So it's basically working with our colleagues from other cultural institutions in Scotland. And we're going to offer a tour of Mayan collections in Scotland. So the National Museum of Scotland, the National Library of Scotland, and it includes the moving image section of the National Library of Scotland. So early movies and so on and so forth. And the National Galleries of Scotland, Glasgow Life. Historic Scotland, 
the National Trust for Scotland. So if you are planning to come and visit Scotland and to follow in Mary's footsteps, whether it's her afterlife or whether it is objects connected to her in cultural institutions, you'll know everything you need to well, know. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining me today. This has been absolutely delightful. Like I said, Mary was the first my entry into Tudor history. I learned about Mary, and then I learned about her involvement with Elizabeth. So it's just been great having you here today. Thank you for, thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, and I welcome you back anytime. I'll be sure to put your course in the notes and share it with my followers. And I also want to thank the listeners. I have to tell you, over the last week, last couple of weeks, actually, I have had so many emails and messages and just so many nice notes about O, and I'm super excited about this one because of my attachment to Mary. And I had a, a great review someone sent me from MyBell69 who said that it was her favorite podcast, and I appreciate that. I also want to thank Philip, Janice, Tasman, Eileen, Zoe, Trevor, Crystal, and of course, Paul. I always have to thank Paul. And Carrie F. has just been such a great supporter. I wanted to give her a shout out. So thanks again for listening and for leaving those reviews and sending the emails. And Stephen and Anne, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Deb. Thank you. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.